Hello, welcome back to Homefront History. This is part two of our look at the regular army and their role in defending the nation in the Second World War. If you haven't listened to part one, please go back and do so. Without further ado, let's get back to it. So yeah, 41, again, um, potential for invasion threat, you know, potential invasion, but a massive time of consolidation. Obviously, with the changing commander-in-chief of home forces in July 1940 from Ironside to Allen Brook, we see the implementation wholesale of um, uh, Brook's nodal point defence strategy. So stop lines are out, nodal points are in, towards the end of 1941, pillboxes are out as well. Um, and then that brings us into 1942. So by late 1941, early 1942, this is when we start to see this early transition uh, from the regulars and TAs where they start to hand over additional responsibilities to the Home Guard. And again, this is a very, very broad timeline. This isn't a one-size-fits-all thing for everywhere, but it's a broad broad idea of what's going on. Um, so, yeah, the um, regs and the TA start to um, kind of bring the Home Guard into uh, into the fold, essentially, and start to train them up for more active defence roles. Um, so, again, yeah, uh, wide reorganisation, Consolidation of the defences, but more emphasis put on preparing the Home Guard for frontline, front line, sorry, in inverted commas, um, service. And then into 943 is where we see the regulars and the TA start to de delegate pretty much well, the majority of defence to the Home Guard. So the regulars and TAs have been prepared for fighting overseas at this point and fighting elsewhere and obviously for reinvading France. And yeah, 43 is when we see the Home Guard take on things like coastal artillery batteries and anti-aircraft batteries. So it's relatively late in the war. You consider the... Yeah. Home Guard were disbanded in December 1944. Mm. To see them take on the primary role in 43 is a lot later than the impression you would get most of the time. You know, you, yeah, you often get the impression that as soon as the Home Guard were formed, they were given a you know 9.2 inch gun to play with on the coast or yeah. an anti-aircraft gun, you know, to mm. play with. And it it just shows the amount of time it took to train the Home Guard into an effective fighting force yeah. where they could be left essentially left to their own devices but do their job effectively. Not only train them to that, but were needed to be there because because yeah. the numbers and regulars and TAs were sufficient. That that you know we weren't lacking that they weren't needed for those roles. I mean that's that that's the point. Yeah. Is it? it wasn't until yeah. we started to be, as I said, a bit more aggressive in a, in our in our approach to the war, we were yeah. going out to, to to other places that they were needed to come in. And by that point, they were obviously trained. But up until that point, they just weren't needed. I mean that's the that's the point, isn't it? The, the yeah. TAs and TAs and regulars had such a you know, were there in in sufficient numbers, um, certainly by by forty three that that they I just think they do a, they do a bigger job of, of of morale boosting and propaganda wise the home guard to show, you know that that your local town's going to be defended. Mm. You know they do a bigger well yeah they're right in your eyesight there. aren't they? They're, yeah. they're, they're 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 at every Sunday service at yeah. church. Do you know what I mean yeah. so they're they're oh, yeah. they're they're there in your eyesight. You know you know you're going to be protected. Whereas yeah. the regulars and the TAs aren't. They're often. They're in a away. pillbox. Yeah. 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 In a, an outer line of defense that you can't get anywhere near. And a fag on the like cliff with a Bren gun. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They're in, you know, restricted areas generally, aren't they? Where you're not going to, yeah, yeah. you know, get out to and just have a, you know, have a play on a beach with mines and stuff. Yeah. And a <laughs> chat with, you know. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's actually a really, really good point. So yeah, that is a very, very broad, broad timeline of, um, mm. of kind of events. And then, you know, it's, December 1942, they've decided or uh, assessed that the anti the invasion threat is over. And it's, you know, relatively early. You know, the anti-invasion defence... That is um, ballsy. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, so they bought, the idea was that they could start to draw the defences down and mothball them. And then if the invasion threat reappeared, obviously with the Germans busy fighting on three or four different fronts, if that invasion threat did reappear in 1943, then the regulars and the TAs could be brought out again to be put in uh, frontline defence if needs be, to take over from the home guard again. So even in '43, if things had gone sour after D-Day, things were in place for the regs and the TAs to be deployed yeah. in frontline defence again. It wouldn't have fallen on the home guard after, you know, if D-Day had failed. So that's... That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Because that's, that that's the thing so, that the home, the home guard is still... I mean, you read like accounts of, of people that are still doing training. They're, they're being trained for these sort of like small-scale raider-type... Right. Um, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you know, get in some German commandos or, you know, buy an e-boat or something and then, you know, attack a position and, and, and sod off again. Capture something. And capture yeah. something. And you see yeah. this in Home Guard training films. There's a there's a one mm. about uh, defending a, uh, sorry, it's called the Street Fighting Series 1943 Home Guard films. Yeah. You can find them online. Yeah. They're fantastic. They're really um, good. That's one that shows the Smith gun being operated, isn't it? That's exactly the one. Yeah, really, really good video shows series. you how, you know, to defend or an attack and a, and uh, in somewhere that's been, uh, what's the word? So occupied, raided. Yeah, yeah. Ra- yeah. yeah. So that there, there was a fear about that um, in mm. that in after D Day that there would be these sort of retaliatory raids. Yeah. Well, they um, um, the Orcs units were sent to uh, from all over the country, sent to the Isle of Wight right. to defend oh. the Isle of Wight. Uh, so they were coming from Northumberland and wow. Dorset all over, and they were sent. They were. Um, we got a bit of paperwork from. Uh, group in Essex is it basically mm. it's headed trip to the seaside you can't take you can't take these explosives on the train mm. uh, but yeah <laughs> wow. they, they, they thought they were going to France wow. they thought they were going to say they thought they were taking yeah. part in the invasion and it wasn't until they got to the yellow uh. white they realized they, they were but they uh, they were shifted down to protect oh. to, to supplement the regulars and the home yeah. guards just on the yellow another, white that's another Amazing. thing whether the home guard get there's a few essays in the defense it's called the services magazine defense home mm. guard monthly quite a rare magazine to find copies of these days but there was some there was a really interesting essay in there that i read once and i never found it again because it was on an ebay listing should have uh, took a screenshot yeah. but um <laughs> there was a, a an ex-major or a current home guard major was suggesting that although the home guard had been using in british coastal offenses mm. to free up the regulars he was uh, suggesting that they should have been shipped over to france to man mulberry uh-huh. harbour and to man the ports there because they already had experience of doing it yeah. um, to free up troops for the final push into Berlin. That's, That's really interesting. Sort of, that, that saying, interesting. Well, they're, more than, they're more than equipped, but then, you know, he also, I think he also did caveat that then that makes them real troops. Was uh, that the volunteers? Was that the home um, guard and not the home defense battalions? No, it's home, so home guard. Def- he was, was he suggest he was suggesting that home guard were good enough at that time. <laughs> wow. Yeah. In fact, um, mentioned there the Home Defence Battalions. Need to look into that because I think we got yeah. a question on Twitter, and that's something I've started to look at. But yeah, we'll, we'll look at that, that could, later. because that'll be useful because you can help me with, my, with that bit of my book, Chris. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm more than happy to. Yeah, <laughs> if no, you can do fun. that research for this me, that'd be ideal. This podcast just going to be helping Andy finish that book, isn't it? <laughs> so finish it, uh, start it. Not quite at the end yet. Let's have a look at um, let's have a look at the mobile reserves and the GHQ reserve. So everyone thinks of uh, the defences today has been just completely static. You know, I think this largely comes down to, you know, you see a pillbox in the landscape and obviously you can't bloody move, can it? So everyone assumes, and Ironside gets a bad rap as well for, you know, setting up, uh, yeah, I can see Andy shaking his head there. Um, <laughs> Ironside gets a really, really bad rap for being um, 
been static minded and if you read his you know if you, if you read his diary you know it's it's clearly not true but that's that's a theme for another episode anyway um so a key aspects of the home forces were mobile reserves as well so not just at um, a national level, also at a local level. So the defence during this period is, you know, largely seen as solely been static. And in some cases, it was with troops on the coast and other areas being ordered to stand to and stay at their posts, you know, to the last bullet and last man. There was provision within those defences um, for some element of mobile counterattacking. So usually if you had a battalion um, in defence, there'd be one company of the battalion um, held back to counterattack and force um, any you know any troops that managed to get a foothold out of those positions. Uh, but I digress. Um, so yeah, there was provision for mobile reserves that would counterattack and react to a situation as it developed. And you generally see these within at the core core level, give or take, and generally you know, you know well, from core downwards. So core um, and division, brigade, battalion level, you see these provisions for mobile reserves. And obviously, following the fall of France, you know, these were limited in terms of the, by the supply of vehicles, you know. Um, so although localised formations were formed, sometimes actually relied on requisition civilian vehicles and in some cases, um, buses to hmm. allow them some mo- some form of mobility, you know, and it's the effectiveness of, of this is open to debate and, mm. you know, clearly, clearly so. But there was provision there. And this is the key thing that Ironside makes very clear is that he's desperate for a mobile reserve. At yeah. all levels um but again we'll cover that uh in a future podcast i've got so, I've, I've i've got a um I've, I've just written literally about mm. half an hour before we came on uh, a chap uh patrick barris who was an officer serving in the second battalion essex regiment which is part of the 47th division up near yeah. uh hereford and that was part of the one of these mobile divisions and he was saying nice. uh he, he said to start with we weren't actually mobile uh, but I woke up one morning and found a whole lot of red buses with silver tops, single deckers, yeah. all parked under the trees by the fields. They were Midland red buses from Birmingham. Amazing. They were our tactical transport. A couple of days later, wow. they'd all disappeared under the camouflage paint. Yeah, that's amazing. amazing. Um, you see with the uh, um, six uh, King's Own Royal Regiment, I think it is the one that I've looked at in detail. When they went to uh, act as a mobile troop around York, they were given buses and they quickly painted them in you know the olive drab so yeah although um initially they had um very poor equipment you know equipment issues as a lot of forces did at this time towards the end of 914 to 941 in general we see the replacement of resources starting to take effect which is something that um alan brooke starts to capitalize on in his terms of defense as well uh just to quickly mention to uh, keep Rich Fisher happy um, over at VickersMachineGun.org. Uh, you also have the Motor Machine Gun Brigades as well, which are a really cool, interesting little unit. And these were essentially um, mobilised uh, Vickers Machine Gun units uh, that uh, were given their own form of transport. And they would have occupied, I can't remember where they operated it in particular. There was one up in Yorkshire near Hull. One down on the south coast. I think there were three in total. But the idea with these was that they'd quickly deploy Vickers machine guns and set up in a strategic location to counter, in, you know, incoming infantry as required. And they're a really interesting unit that I don't think they lasted particularly long. But it shows that this mobile aspect was key to defence and was, you know, it was clearly thought the defences weren't purely static. And again, this is alongside the home guard thing. This is the other damaging. Um, Myth that takes its toll on the effectiveness and the prep, how prepared uh, the defences were. But I think, again, you're right. and obviously we'll we'll do something on pillboxes. But I think when yeah. when someone drives past a pillbox in a field and it's on its own, yeah, 
and people look at it and they think, well, that's going to get blown up or driven around. That's just yeah. not an effective, whether it's home guard or regulars, it's just not going to be effective, is it? But yeah. actually putting the context of, of a, of a wider network of pillboxes plus a mobile division somewhere yeah. nearby that's going to come around, then it become, and I've, I always, I've like, like it. So the stop lines and the pillboxes or, mm. you know, I'm, I'm a big admirer of Ironside as it turns out. Yeah. Uh, but he <laughs> the, the stop lines are a bit you know like on a iron age hill fort where they got the defenses kind yeah. of going around like that and it, yeah. it, it it takes the attackers to the bit where the defenders can attack them most effectively and that, that, like, that's that's yeah. essentially why i see these stop lines is 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 almost shepherding the germans yeah. in the direction that we want them to go well, it, and yeah. then attack them effectively from there yeah. It's yeah. like the Atlantic Wall. It's not just a series of like solo bunkers along beaches. It's interconnecting trenches, everything else. Yeah, correct. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's yeah. exactly the sort of same thing. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly. Well, as you know, as you've said, you know, literally looking into that um, just before we start the talk, that is exactly the strategy. So the static stop lines are there to halt or slow down the enemy, so that the mobile reserves, both nationally and locally, can deploy and take on, you know, take on the um, take on the task of wiping the troops out, and that's. You know that is the entire strategy. It's not just sitting there and waiting for the enemy to come and hopefully for, for, uh, forcing them back. No. Yeah, imagine no line. It's this holding in place. You know, determining where the enemy are going to push, holding them in place when you can, then counterattacking. Yeah. And in line with that, at a national level, we have the GHQ reserve, and again, these are completely forgotten, despite being the genuine, yeah, actual final line of defence. So that again. Home Guard are always saying, oh, the last line of defence, they weren't. The GHQ Reserve was. Um, so the task of the GHQ Reserve was, so these were concentrations of units located further inland. Um, and I'll go through where they were located in a second. But the idea behind these was that these are formations of at least one armoured division um, and ideally two infantry divisions, I think it was, give or take. And they were located inland to provide this final counterattack, this final push to the invading force. Once the invading force had been stalled, they were there to provide this knockout blow. If they failed, that was it. There was no additional forces available, or there would have been few additional forces available to push this, uh, push the invading force back. So the GHQ reserve are the genuine last line of defense. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the Home Guard sat behind uh, behind sorry in front and behind of the regulars and the TAs and this is the key thing they were second line troops they were surrounded by the regulars in front of them and behind them in terms of the GHQ reserve yeah, yeah. um and the GHQ reserve remains in i think it remains in place during through the duration of the anti invasion defenses as well and this was established by Ironside Good um, man. yeah exactly he knew what he was doing <laughs> he, he's just completely maligned i just don't i don't yeah, why? You know, he, he didn't have the resources. But anyway, we can have a rant about that in a future podcast. <laughs> um, so, yeah, as of August 1940, July August 1940, there were two GHQ reserves um, that were poised, you know, just behind the front lines. And as I've mentioned, their role was to provide this knockout blow to the invading force. And if they failed, that would have been it. They were under the direct command of the Commander-in-Chief of Home Forces as well. So it was um their direct responsibility to ensure that the ghq reserve were deployed at the right time if they were deployed too early then they would meet the brunt of the incoming force and be wiped out if they were deployed too late then this force would have potentially time to re-muster and continue the attack and become mm. mobile again so deploying this force there would have been quite a knack to deploying this and obviously the commander-in-chief of home forces knew what they were doing but things could have still held in the balance if the invading force had halted in uh, this version of Chris's story time, I want you to imagine uh, the area to the north of London. 
this is where you find the general headquarters reserve under Forecourt. Um, these were uh, concentrated around Northamptonshire and Cambridgeshire to the north of London. Uh, these comprised of some of the better equipped units um, that were left or had stayed in the UK or been uh, pulled out of France um, prior to the fall of France. Um, and yeah, under Forecourt, there was the 2nd Armoured Division, the 1st Reconnaissance Brigade, and the 43rd Wessex uh, Division, which was a TA unit. And these were pretty much the key reserve. And their location around Northamptonshire to the north of London was extremely clever. From this location, they could, if needs be, deploy south. If the invasion th threat came from the, or if the invasion landed on the south, they could uh, push through London. If the invasion came from the east into East Anglia, they could very quickly deploy to the east. And if it came from the north in Lincolnshire or Yorkshire, they could push north. It's a when you look at the... In fact, I'll highlight some resources later where you can see this, um, these locations, but they are very cleverly cited to defend literally or to provide the counterattack in all directions. So the location of Forecourt was extremely intelligent. And again, it completely dispels this myth that the defences were all static and not very well planned. You know, you look at this on a map and it makes perfect sense. Mm. Then we have the other General Headquarters Reserve, which was uh, Seven Corps. And this was located around um, on the line around Aldershot, give or take. And again, located behind the frontline troops, defending the coast um, and the inland areas. Uh, these were specifically deployed uh, to counterattack in the south, essentially. And these comprised the 1st Armoured Division, key thing here, the 2nd New Zealand Division and the 1st Canadian Division. The role of the Commonwealth forces and the Free Forces is is just completely wipes out of the story. So you don't hear about the um, the Polish troops deployed to Scotland in um, December 1940. You don't hear about the uh, the roles of the Czechs and the, Yugos that the, and the Yugoslavs played. You don't hear about the Free Forces and the Commonwealth Forces, despite it's their because, role being... It's because, it's because we were alone, that's why. Exactly, yeah, and it was Remember. all, 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 um, all <laughs> young should, boys and old men. We should have a drinking game whenever someone mentions that. <laughs> no, no I, I prefer the game of just getting... Increasingly depressed each time. I <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's the game I yeah. play. Um, so yeah, again, the New Zealanders and the First Canadian Division and the First Armoured uh, poised just behind the front lines um, on the south coast as an additional uh, general headquarters reserve. Again, like, well, I lived near Chartwell when I when oh, I, nice. where I grew up. So there was a Canadian Armoured Division around there. I think, off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. won't be surprised. Yeah. Mm. So those are your two main General Headquarters Reserves. Um, and then you've also got the 3rd Infantry Division under someone called General Montgomery, um, little known general no, of the Second World War. No, no clue. Nah. Um, and they were held as an additional reserve around or near Bath. So you've got an additional infantry division, which could have been brought into play, if needs be, um, by the Commander-in-Chief of Home Forces. So, yeah, the GHQ reserves were key to defending the country, and they were the genuine last, actual last line of defence. You know, the, even though this is something that's attributed to the Home Guard, it's another part of this Home Guard mythology where they're seen as the last line of defence. They weren't the GHQ reserve wars, and they comprised of, you know, the regulars and uh, territorials. Uh, there were additional reserves as well. So you've, um, you know, you've got these um, additional units under direct control of the War Office or GHQ Home Forces. So you've got the... the um, 3rd Australian Imperial Force, 21st Army Tank Brigade, and one brigade of the 2nd Army Division uh, deployed between Bath and Swindon as an additional reserve. So you have got multiple reserves going on, but you've got these clearly defined uh, General Headquarters reserves. But it just shows how many troops were held back to counterattack. You know, the, yeah. all, the def all the defenders weren't just deployed on the coast and inland. There was this mobile element to 
deliver this knockout blow. And a key part of military doctrine is, uh, and always has been, to have a reserve. If you don't have a reserve, you've got nothing as a backup. Yeah, um, exactly. And this was the same in the, um, you know, in the anti-invasion defences. And it's, I don't know, it's just so odd that, you know, the uh, focus is always on the home guard, old men and young boys who weren't trained, but also these departures from standard military doctrine of keeping reserve and things like that. You know, the people, if any, knew what they were doing. Um, and I think the biggest um, downside to the defenders were, or the def- defence was this lack of equipment after Dunkirk. And that is something that in itself needs a lot of um, additional research. And obviously uh, in the future, we'll have um, a guest speaker who'll give some insight into this aspect. Definitely. We'll look mm. at that um, in itself. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that gives like a better idea of the regulars and TAs in terms of a broad timeline, their actual role, their yeah. forgotten role, and their importance to the history. What to do in an air raid? Get undercover at once. Don't stand staring at the sky. Take cover at once. I'll just do a broad kind of overview of where the regulars and TAs sat in the hierarchy of defence. So this is a key thing. Um, I'm doing the hand, hand gestures again, which no one can see. I love your jazz hands, Chris. They're great. Thank it's you. Great. Thank you. I've been working on those for many years. Um, <laughs> so let's consider where the regs and the TA sat. Um, obviously, they were at the forefront of defence on land, but they essentially sat behind um, the Royal Navy, who were operating out to sea. Coastal Command, who were operating in the air, to provide an early warning of the invasion had it come. And then you've also as well got the RAF, you know, both Bomber and Fighter Command, assuming they weren't wiped out by the Luftwaffe. But they would have also been able to attack the invading fleet, attack the invasion beaches. And you've also got um, the Royal Artillery deployed um, in coastal artillery batteries as well, who are probably even more understated and forgotten than the regs and the TAs. The role of the uh, Royal Artillery in defence is a story in itself, but again, integral to this um, defensive story. So yeah, on land, the regs and the TA sat right at the forefront of um, defence, but in terms of the wider hierarchy, they sat behind the Royal Navy and the Air Forces um, as well. So that's worth mentioning as as a key key point. But I'm going to point out again that you know, in this, in terms of this uh, hierarchy of defence, the Home Guard sat behind the regulars and the TAs, but also in front of the GHQ reserve as a second line force, not a final force. Or a I mean, in a, in a nice way of putting it, if, if you're relying on the Home Guard on their own to yeah. beat off an invasion, you're you stuck. haven't got a chance. You yeah. might as well just surrender, <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, especially in 1940. Yeah, God. Um, yeah. As as I've already mentioned, you know, supply of weapons and equipment is a key issue for some time after the fall of France and even before the fall of France as well. So I've seen it mentioned that obviously prior to, well, in early 1940 with the BEF deployed um, to France, a lot of the um, home forces units were stripped of their equipment and that was reissued to the BAF to supplant the, um, and bolster the uh, supplies of the BEF who were deployed in active service. And again, this key point of supply is a massive issue in the early stages of the war um, and would have seriously hampered, let's say, um, mm. the effectiveness of the anti-invasion defence. And that's a more of a key point than, you know, um, the effectiveness of the Home Guard is whether the regulars and TAs would have had the um, essential equipment that they would have needed. And like I say, in the future, we'll have a guest speaker who will cover this in more detail and give us a better yeah, insight definitely. into this because I'm not in a position to, I don't like to 
comment on things I don't necessarily mm-hmm. know about. And this, you know, being an archaeologist, my main area of expertise is looking at a pillbox and boring someone rigid about, you know, for an hour about it. Um, as <laughs> we'll they, have that later on in the show, way. guys. Don't worry yeah, about that. Um, so you'll have concrete <laughs> time with Chris eventually. That kind of brings me on to effectiveness. We simply don't know how effective the regs and the TAs were, would have been at the minute, minute for two reasons. Firstly, we don't know the true extent of the anti-invasion defences. You know, we see a pillbox isolating the landscape. You don't see the barbed wire. You don't see the slit trenches. You don't see the counter-attacking force. And also, we don't know how well armed the units deployed in 1940 and 41 would it were, essentially. Mm. So effectiveness is massively subjective um and more often than not these days it's based on personal opinion you know and um often on a belief that the germans were going to be rolling in with panthers and tigers in 1940 and 41 as well <laughs> which i always find odds you know and the german tanks yeah. weren't as heavily armored as they were later in the war captured 38 t's and panzer threes and twos yeah, exactly yeah exactly yeah. you know that's a key thing as well you know if they came up in the eventually um deploy stugs and things like that which were quite heavy yeah. but That'd have been much later on um, in terms of the invasion. But again, I, I, you know, I think it'd be nice to get someone in who knows the German armour from this period and mm. have that discussion because I, I know literally nothing about this time other than the Germans had lighter <laughs> tanks than tigers. Um, and yeah, that kind of like brings it all to a close. So what I'm going to do is just finish off with a couple of interesting facts here. So one thing that sprung to mind. So recently I've been uh, working with some residents in Thetford. Uh, which is down the road from me uh, in Norfolk. So as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from Norfolk originally. Uh, I lived in the um, in South Yorkshire, which was the one county in the country which had uh, they had one one pillbox, and I've moved to a really nice county which has um, pretty much more pillboxes than anywhere else. Uh, but that's an aside. So yeah, I've been working with some residents in uh, Thetford to record uh, surviving anti-invasion defences um, in the town. But for those of you who love Dad's Army, Dad's Army, <laughs> uh, Dad's Army's spiritual home is Thetford. Um, And interestingly enough, Thetford wasn't actually defended by the Home Guard. It was defended by the regulars and the territorials. That's Um, amazing. That's a great fact. Thetford, um, Norfolk, um, or uh, I think it was Eastern Command's uh, nodal points were categorised A, B and C. So category A nodal points were defended by the regulars on a full-time basis. I can't remember whether it was, there there were a lot of the, uh, battalion or a company, I can't quite remember, but they were the responsibility of the regulars and the TAs. Category B were slightly less important than the Category A defences, but again, they were defended by the regulars. And then Category C def- um, nodal points were defended by the Home Guard. Thetford was a Category A nodal point, Love and from it. the period 1940 to 1942 would not have been defended by the Home Guard, despite being the spiritual home of Dad's oh, army. Really, It was defended by the 52nd Lowland Infantry Division. Oh, so that, there you yes. are. So there you are, Andy. Me One for you, mate. That, yeah. So you go into that video, you see nothing but Dad's army anywhere, but you see no um, no memorial to the 52nd Oof. Lowland Infantry Division. So that's kind of like this whole issue in a microcosm is the popularity of the Home Guards, you know, and their spiritual home wasn't even defended by them. Love it. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm probably going to get crucified for that online. Um, <laughs> you can't tell also, the truth. <laughs> yeah, how dare you? Oh, how dare you mess with my 1970s sitcom and how it's influenced my understanding of this period of history. Um, <laughs> and kind of on a more serious note, though, now, um, obviously the units from the regs and the TAs eventually went on to, to be deployed elsewhere. And one particular sad story is that obviously the um, some of the units, obviously the soldiers deployed within the home defences, eventually went off to fight and die. Mm. Um, so the inf- 18th Infantry Division, which were a TA unit, and they devo- uh, defended a wide area of Norfolk. 
Uh, they eventually went on to be deployed. Um, excuse me. They eventually went on to be deployed to Singapore, and the entire Jesus. division was captured by the Japanese, and they wow. effectively ceased to exist. So, this is why this is important. This story of the regulars and TA units that were deployed in the UK, their story needs to be told. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to kind of like finish on this, um, I did a survey of a pillbox, which is in a uh, Royal British Legion Memorial Garden. And there's a nice little plaque to the Home Guard there, but no mention of um, the 52nd Lowland Infantry Division that defended that area or the 18th. And this is why remembering this, um, the, this role of the, these regulars and TAs is vitally important because these units that were deployed to defend the UK eventually went on and people who were deployed within the anti-invasion defences did see active service and many of them died. And that is yeah. something that we need to, we really do need to acknowledge today. You know, it's, um, I just find it quite shameful, really, that their story is absolutely ignored. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of me over. I will just highlight, uh, for those of you who are interested in finding out more about this, obviously, Earlier on, I mentioned uh, the British Army Handbook, 1939-45 by George Forty. If you're interested in finding out more about the regs and the TAs, buy that. That's a fantastic book. If you want one of the first official accounts of the um, how Britain uh, planned to defend itself in the Second World War, I recommend uh, Captain G.C. Wynne's Stopping Hitler. This was recently republished, and you could get it for a couple of quid online uh so this was originally published in 1947 i think it was sorry 48 and that was the first account of the anti-invasion defenses and that is a fantastic little book really um, good. half of the book is appendices but these have got like uh, the ghq standing orders for specific times um after the fall of france and everything that is a fantastic book to Sounds have great. and if you're after one more this is a bit more heavyweight but covers things in immense detail um, you can get a reprint of The Defence of the United Kingdom by Basil Collier. This was published in 1957 or 58. I can't quite this remember. This is my Bible at the moment. This, this is, is a like... fantastic book. <laughs> um, I've only scratched the surface on this, but it covers literally everything in regards to... It's got to great defense. maps in as well. Great it maps. Does. If, I recommend if you can find an original copy, get it, because the maps um, in the reprints oh, are kind of printed. Yeah, they're printed down the middle of a page and you miss out some of the details but those three books if you want to find out more they'll give you a really decent basis in um the actual history of the you know second world war anti-invasion defenses and they'll help you avoid some of the bullshit we see today uh, correct and also also if you wait until um uh, kind of summer next year there'll be another one out oh yes so, yeah, i've heard there's another book coming out on these yeah. subjects as well isn't there yeah um some bloke so called I'm, a PR man. I'm a pr man i just chuck it in yeah, some no, guy called chandy atterton yeah. Not metal, he, likes some, but, you know. he likes this weird secret force that lived in bunkers. <laughs> yeah, 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 the ones that lived Never in heard of him. <laughs> yeah, that's no, no. Um, and if you want to investigate um the role of the um home forces more through a series of interactive maps that I created, please do check out the uh UK Second World War Heritage Home Forces resources. So if you go to uh ukswh.wordpress.com, we'll you can find on the fantastic. Twitter for everyone find to find. Find a really nice. They are to... so. Those maps are incredible, Chris. I have to say, a- they, absolutely incredible. Let me just give a bit of background on those. So, obviously, I've been you know doing this for nearly twenty years now, and it was last year that I just thought, well, you know, I start to look at the wider organisation because I've got a good idea of what's going on locally. But the net, to see things in context, you need to properly consider the national picture. And it was at this point that I realised that there isn't 
really there's loads of disparate resources and sources of information and i just thought well i might as well start creating a map so that i can better understand where the commands were where the units were and all this and that eventually snowballed into me creating a quite detailed gis map of the essentially the chain of command using several sources and i just brought those together and stuck them online and it's amazing hope that they can act as a really useful resource to show the organization of the regs and the tas you know in an interactive format it's great yeah. and, and, and as and like you were saying earlier you can see why they were positioned in particular places particularly the reserve yeah. the mobile reserve you can use it's, no, it's fantastic I, yeah, yeah highly recommend nice. it fantastic and i think that probably brings us to the end of today's episode so thanks a lot chris for that it was incredible i think me and andy have probably learned <laughs> like as much as I made it all well. up. I Incredible. made it all up. It's all oh, did he? ignore it. Oh no. Oh. That's <laughs> oh, very good. Fantastic, Chris. Amazing. Um, and I hope everyone now always remembers the regulars whenever they think about home yeah. defense. Next time you see a pillbox, just remember it's highly unlikely that it was ever occupied by the home guard. It's more likely that it was the regulars or TAs in there. Later. Yes. There you go. So uh, we asked uh, on our Twitter and our Facebook page, you can find us at Homefront History Pod um, or uh, at HFH History on Twitter and uh, Homefront History Podcast on Facebook. Please give us a follow. Um, we'll be active in there. We asked for your questions. And the one we have um, this week from Stewie, is it really uh, links in well to what Chris was saying there. So he asks, do you know of any cool reuse of defensive materials post-war? Yeah, I think um, you see, you see a lot of reuse of things like pillboxes for as bat hides and things like that. And in terms of materials, um, I've seen a fair few anti-tank blocks which have been reused as breakwaters and as coastal defences. Um, but I'm going to go off on thinking about reuse of structures with this. And some of the most fascinating I've seen, one of my favourite examples is um, on Mersey Island in, I think it is Essex. Yeah, I worked there with um, Citizen in the Museum of London Archaeology the other year. And my favourite is a former uh, coastal artillery battery um, gun house, which has been turned into a cafe. And the wow. nearby sole surviving um, coastal artillery searchlight has been turned into an ice cream shop. And those two things as themselves wouldn't have survived if they weren't converted into... Um, into you know a cafe and a little ice cream shop so that's that's those are my favorites in terms of reuse of materials so near me uh, in a little village called yettington they reused a um so the royal marines used to be based up on woodbury common before they were based at limston and uh the locals nicked the naffy on oh, no, i nicked it they got <laughs> the naffy hut uh this corrugated iron structure and they took it and it's now their village hall I mean, it's pretty oh, small, it's inadequate, amazing. but that's pretty cool. And there's one as a RAF um, um, observation building up on the cliffs just above where I live um, that had fallen into some disrepair, but it's now like an Airbnb right on the cliff face. It's amazing. Balcony's still there. Still got a blast wall behind it. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant site. And they've got little, oh, this amazing little plaque and some bits that they'd found when they were converting it um, all on show. So that's a, that's a, that's a cool little thing. I know nice. that one thing that I know is that, and I think I saw it on TikTok actually, um, was a there's railings in London that were ARP stretchers, and I keep seeing the same TikTok every now and then. So I know that you know they were reuse. Um, yeah, they were. Yeah, because yeah. I think it was a lot of the bars that were there were taken for metal for the for war material. Oh, we should do. We should do that. We should definitely. Do we should that, do yeah. that. There's, a, beaver there's brook, a lot of mythology beaver around that. Yeah. 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 Big, big, bad Beaverbrook. <laughs> yeah. 
Nice. No, so yeah, a fascinating a... character. What I'm thinking is, if people see anything that they know that is wartime that's been reused, if they could post it That'd on really Twitter it? or Facebook, yeah. and if it's Definitely. not, I can tell them off, you know. And um, yeah, I mean, you can. Yeah. You can, there's a. I think there's a map you can find where um, of documented uh, black bombard plinths that you can visit. Um, I'm going to be making a, a pilgrimage to to see one soon if I if it's still there. That's right. Um, so yeah, so definitely, and if if people do when they're out and about, please you know drop it onto our Twitter page or tag us, and we'll retweet it. Yeah. You know these things are as we go further away, these things are going to get forgotten about more and more. Yeah, so correct. That's the reason why. Li- I mean, literally today, I found two anti-tank um, defenses in the in yeah. the in the entrance of the cricket club, which I've been attending for like twenty-five years, never seen. Literally walked past it every like every friday saturday and they're just they're massive huge cylindrical things with the, that's one way to defend the stumps with the uh <laughs> <laughs> they look like a pair of stumps on top it's I'll, I'll try and get some better pictures but yeah yeah because um yeah i'm interested in those i've never seen anything quite like them um, yeah. apart from at pegwell bay maybe right um Ooh. where i've done some work but yeah i'm, I'm interested in um it's a home front history pod first folks <laughs> well just as part of my, you know doing part of the archaeology thing is classifying and identifying mm-hmm. different types of anti-invasion um anti-tank defenses so they can we can work out methodologies for properly recording them you know? i think they must yeah. be anti-tank rather than anti-glider because they're so close to the anti-landing <coughs> anti-landing anti-landing you're right motorized motorized sorry uh uh yeah so i, I think they must be that rather than are the they other. in a hedgerow are they no, I think this, they're weirdly placed and i can't believe that they oh, okay. haven't that they would move because they're so massive very near a canal and uh, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to see some um, some decent right. photos. I'll, I'll do some maps and I'll I'll, I'll hack my way in there. <laughs> Definitely, not without landowner consent at least. I don't know whose land it is actually. I'll find out. I'm definitely find make out. sure that I get permission before I do that. So there we have it. I hope that helps your questions, Stewie. Um, and thanks. And we'll definitely be trying to fit more in. Um, and you can always contact us on the Twitter. You can message us there. If you've come across anything you think we should know about, and we can mention it on the show. Yeah, we've got any questions. Yeah, definitely. Please do. So that was Chris uh, talking about the role of the regulars in home defence in the Second World War, and we'll catch you again next week for more Home Front History. Bye, everybody. Thanks, guys. Yeah, see you later.